Well, good morning. Welcome to The Crossing. So glad to see all of you here today. Full house and so excited to be here. Before we jump in, just tagging on to what Rachel said. And by the way, she is pregnant. So if you were like whispering like, is she pregnant? Yeah, she's pregnant. All right. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Easter times because this is spring break week, Palm Sunday today, but we know that Easter is coming next weekend at all of our campuses. So um, let's start with Windmill. Here on the Windmill campus, if this is where you attend, the service times are there. There's two on Saturday and four on Sunday. So we'd encourage you to choose a service to attend, especially with people you're inviting, and then also choose a service to serve at. Help us, um, specifically on this campus, with the hundreds of thousands of people that will be here. Our Southeast Campus, if you attend there or, or would like to attend there, they have two services on Sunday morning, 10 and 11.30 a.m., and we're looking forward to some real momentum uh, there for uh, the Southeast Campus. Um, I want to do two things. I want to welcome two groups of people today. First, I want to welcome the Southeast Campus and those that are microsites like in St. George that are watching us online, or if you're in the comfort of your own home, or if you're on a spring break trip, trip and you're in Cancun. We welcome you today, all right? We're glad that you are here. But we also want to welcome you again if you are a guest today. Each and every weekend, we know that, that we have those people that are here, and you're here, um, that are here for the first time. And we want you to know that we prepare and that we are expectant that you will be here. And we know that each weekend, it's somebody's first weekend. And you might not know this, but every weekend we have somewhere between 50 to 75 that we can identify people that are here at the crossing for the first time that are here. And you may be one of those today. We just have one goal, and that's simply this, to connect you, to engage you in what God is doing here at the crossing so that hopefully you can discover Jesus and the journey that he wants you to take as well. So if you're new today, we are so thrilled to have you and to connect you. Now, I said that but I also realize that it's a challenge to connect. Kind of ties into what we're talking about today. It's difficult when you get in a crowd like this, especially in a church, to connect. Because we are a church that comes in all shapes and all sizes. There's a lot of people, all kinds of lifestyles and backgrounds. We have this value around here that we take very seriously. It's on the outside wall, so that means we take it real seriously. We say this, come as you are. You're supposed to get excited right there, okay? That was, a, that was an awkward pause. The reason I said you should get excited is because many of you may have found the crossing because you were looking for a place where you actually could come as you are. And you found this place because of that. But here's the deal. There are so many churches that say things like come as you are, but because they're filled with people like you and I, it makes it really hard difficult to actually live out that value in real life because we know what it what it feels like when you come to a place like this and you try to find our people we try to find our people right we look around who is our people um, that's a quest in our life that starts really early trying to figure out who our people are but I think it really kicks in in the traumatic years of middle school I mean, it clings to us beyond those years, but it sets in in middle school. Like, we're trying to figure out who are our people. And the lunch table <laughs> is the centerpiece of that experience. I mean, the cafeteria in middle school is intimidating by itself. But just picture that moment, right, when you get your tray or you get your brown bag and you turn to walk in to find your place to sit. Where do I sit, right? Right? Um, some of you, maybe based on 
your background or maybe the color of your skin, yes, that did and still exists sometimes, you, you had to make some decisions right off the bat about where to sit, right, where that was. But for most of us, we are looking for our people and the table for two, two criteria. One, that they are like us, right, that they are like us. And number two, that they actually like us. And so we go and, and, and we find a place to sit. Now, where we sit and where we choose not to sit are really important. Again, because we're looking for people who like us and people who are like us. Now, some of you, you walked by different tables. You walked by the preppy table, right? The jock table, right? The nerd table, the math club table, the drop, <laughs> the drama the drama table, right? You walked by those tables, right? Some of you, by the looks of you, you were at the stoner table, I know, right? No one's shouted out for that one, all right? You were at the hipster table. I was, I was, a, I was a Christian in middle school and high school. So when I would choose to go, I, would, I actually walked by the Christian table. Right? Even though I was a Christian, I, I would sit down once in a while, but every time I would sit down, something weird happened. There was this girl, Robin, like the conversation was just weird. Like she would say things like, I was in first period and I prayed that God would have them serve pizza today. And boom, look, there's pizza today in the cafeteria. And I'd be like, what? Like, I'm out. These, these, these are not my people, Right? And we all think or we assume that it might end in middle school or maybe high school, but the truth is it does not. Because even today, for a lot of us, we're trying to find our people. We're trying to find what are the boundaries of our table because it educates us on who are our people and who are not our people as well, who are not in that crew. We may call them those people, right? So we have our people, and then over there, there are those people, those people with nice cars, those people with crappy cars, those people who work out all the time, those people from the West Coast, people from the East Coast, those people that watch The Bachelor, <laughs> those people from the Middle East, uh-oh, those people from the Republican Party, those people from the... Democratic Party, those people who just like to party. <laughs> we all label individuals with, as those people, and then we paint those people with extremely broad strokes. If you see the world exactly the way that I see it, like all of my pictures, like all of my posts, then you're in. If not, you're out. We do it by race. We do it by religion. And here's the deal. As Christians, we are known as some of the worst at doing this. I mean, we have to be honest today. That's what it's about. We're known in so many ways for, unfortunately, creating these subcultures, these little tribes or little tables that we all sit at. 
And we create them, and they're just for people that are like us, people that believe like us, and those are the only ones that are in. And then once we decide that, then we demonize all the other people who are on the outside. And here's what challenges me. We surround ourselves with people who like us and are like us, but Jesus was not like that. So that messes me up. Because here's the thing. You guys all nodded at me a moment ago, but we all do it. And the longer we're a follower of Christ, guess what, guess what happens to our table? It gets smaller. It gets more exclusive, right? We've got to protect ourselves from the impurity, the sin of the world, right? Do not like the devil in here, right? You were probably at the Christian table if you use terms like that, all right? Jesus was not like that. And what makes it even more difficult is Jesus doesn't like that about us when it happens. I mean, we want to know what table we can sit at. We want to know who are our people and who are not. And then we look at Jesus and he keeps moving around. He keeps breaking through all these kind of barriers. He keeps inviting these kind of people. He keeps inviting those people to sit at the table and offering a seat at places we would not. It's not just a first century thing. It's a 21st century thing. We are in the midst of a time in our society where we are becoming much more diverse while at the same time we are unfortunately becoming much more divided. And we as Christians ought to be the exception, not the rule to that. But we clump together with people who like us, talk like us, believe what we believe, agree, all of, agree with all of our opinions, and then we fill our news feeds and our faces with news and people who talk to us who agree with all of the same things that we agree with and affirm who we are. And it wouldn't be a problem except that it seems like it was a problem to Jesus. So we better deal with it. Today... I want us to observe for the next few moments one of his conversations that I think shines a spotlight on this truth. And it's going to be familiar to so many of you, but that's all I want to do. I just want you to experience this story together with me. And if you're a person who identifies as a Christian, a follower of Christ, the next few minutes I hope makes you a little bit uncomfortable, or at least makes you check yourself, see where you're at. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, someone invited you or you're back at church after a long time away, I'm so pumped. I want you to hear this today because this may be the thing that most drives you crazy about church and about Christians, what we're about to talk about. So it's a perfect day for you to be here. But in any case, I want to invite you to follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 4. Again, that guy in the video a minute ago said the easiest thing to do is just download the app. And you just hit sermon notes, and it's going to show you all the scriptures and all of the thoughts that we're going to talk about. And not only can you follow along, but you can keep them for later. So as you're finding that either in your Bible, John 4, or on the app, I want to remind you that this is the final week of this series that we've been doing called Crucial Conversations. And in this series, we've been taking snapshots from the ministry of Jesus, and we see that Jesus did indeed talk to all different sorts of people. In week one... We found Jesus having a conversation with a guy named Nathaniel who was a skeptic. And Nathaniel, um, he had lots of questions, but Jesus was not afraid of those, and he was not afraid of ours. And we learned that together with the life of Nathaniel. Week two, we met Nicodemus, who was a Jewish scholar who knew all the answers. He had a PhD, um, but he also was curious, and he moved in the course of his conversations with Jesus from a doubter to a disciple. And then last week, Shane talked about the wealthy dude, the rich guy, who was... Um, 
really struggling with his priorities and where his worth was, and he had to get that in order. And what we learned is that Jesus, again, talked to all sorts of people from all various lunchroom tables. And when we watch that, we see that he blows up our ideas of who he's for and who he's not for. And so in John 4, um, John, who's writing this, was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he's writing directly to us. Okay? So we need to understand about that. We're not reading something that happened. We are reading something that happened, but we're reading it in the context of what does that mean for us today. Okay? So in John 4, he starts out by giving us a geography lesson. He says this, so he left Judea, he was in Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. If you're a smart guy or gal in this room, you should be pausing right now and going, actually, he didn't have to. Because Samaria was wedged right between Judea and Galilee. Samaria was populated by the Samaritans who were considered just outcasts by the, pe- by the Jewish people. They were considered impure. They intermarried. Their religious practices, though they had some belief in God, were, were kind of different and screwy. And their theology was off. They are considered heretics. So Jesus honestly didn't have to go through Samaria. All right, he, he really didn't have to. If you look at this map, you can kind of get some context. Is Galilee up here, right? Judea down here. So if you're going either direction, Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee, what most Jews would do is they would actually go over here by the Jordan River and they would just skirt Samaria. Even though it was way out of the way, even though there was obviously a much more direct route, they would go around just to avoid setting foot in the land where the Samaritan lives. That's pretty crazy, right? So when John said that Jesus had to go to Samaria, there's a different reason behind the had to, right? And Paul, in one of his letters, he calls Jesus this. He calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And I love that. You know why? Because if you're like me, we get frustrated sometimes because God is invisible. And he he seems like he's invisible. And Paul says, I get it. It's frustrating. It's hard to follow someone who is invisible. But Paul says the good news is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, watch him. He had to go through Samaria. If you want to know how God feels, watch him. He had to go through Samaria. If you want to know how God would interact with people, watch Jesus. He had to go through Samaria. If you want to know who Jesus wanted at his table, watch him. He makes it very clear. The story goes on, verse 5, it says this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. All right, and now he gives, he's setting geography, now he's setting the time of day. He says, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by this well, and it was about noon. It's important that we know that because noon would have been the time in this climate and in this place where it would have been freaking hot, right? It's like picture the middle of July in Las Vegas, right? And you don't go out at noon to do much, right? You got to be outside for very long. And so the reason this was important is because nobody would normally be around doing chores that could help it. They wouldn't go out to the well to fill their pots with water during that time. They would have gone much earlier in the day or they would have waited till later in the day when it was cooler and gone out to do that. So if someone went to the well at that time of day, it was because they specifically did not want to see anyone at all. They had decided for whatever reason, maybe because of their shame, 
Maybe because of their status at the table or not at the table. Maybe because of their past. They would just go when they could be alone. And then all of a sudden Jesus is sitting there at the well. And he strikes up a conversation with one of those people. Verse 7 says this. When a Samaritan, strike one, woman, strike two, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? This is very strange. Now, some of you, the, the biggest challenge you have is you're so familiar with this story, you're like, yeah, 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 get to it. Stop. She's a Samaritan, okay? You don't talk to Samaritans. You don't get close to Samaritans. You don't ask for a drink from a Samaritan. And she's a woman, no offense, ladies, but in this culture to be a woman and to be a man and there at noon and she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. This is like so inappropriate on so many levels for Jesus to be there. And she knew it too, right? Because sometimes those who feel outcasts and those who aren't at our table, they know why they're not at the table. They know what's going on. And so she says this, you are a Jew and I am, strike one, Samaritan, strike two, a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John knows that we won't quite get this, so he adds a parenthetical note. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. John knew that someday we would not completely understand this. But then, strike three, we're about to find out some things that aren't that good about her. But Jesus answers the question, why are you asking me for a drink? And he says this, if you knew, if you knew. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, referring to himself, and he would have given you living water. He's changing the conversation from physical thirst to spiritual thirst. She doesn't pick up on it. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing. She still thinks you're having a different conversation. You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water. And so he answers her. He says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. In other words, you keep doing the things you're doing. You keep just meeting your physical needs, the urgent needs, the things that we feel like we need to eat. You're, you're going to be repeating that over and over again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of living water, of water welling up to where? Eternal life. Life now, life later eternal life. Over and over again, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because over and over again, Jesus tells us that he didn't come for healthy people, he came for sick people, right? He's not trying, Jesus says, listen, I'm not trying to give water to people who don't feel like they need it. I'm trying to find those people who are actually thirsty for a savior. I'm trying to let them know I'm here for them, that they can have a seat at my table. They might be, not be able to find a seat somewhere else, but I have one for them. And so this woman's race this woman's gender and is a, what we're about to find out, her reputation even, did not discourage Jesus, which is good for us. Because nothing in your life will discourage him either. But she's still confused. She's still confused, one, why he's talking to her. And then he's talking about this living water that leads to eternal life. And all she thought was he wanted a drink. And now she's thinking, if Jesus knew my story, he wouldn't be offering me anything, maybe except a seat on the Jerry Springer show, but not at his table. But he knows that already. And so he says to her, call your husband. Find your husband. Invite your husband to come and to join us. And she answers this way. I have no husband, she replies. And Jesus said to her, you're right, sort of. 
when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Isn't Jesus awesome sometimes? Like he doesn't just go, gotcha. He just like, hey, yeah, you're right. You actually have five husbands and you're living with somebody right now that's not your husband. So true. <laughs> and this is what he says. We all know who you are, but you can come sit at the table anyway if you choose to. The living water that I offer is not restricted away from you. Your past doesn't change my invitation, and your past doesn't stop you from accepting it. This lady was a complete social outcast. She was an unmarried woman living openly with a six ma- from a series of relationships. The community had probably kicked her out. That's why she was there in the middle of the day. And Jesus is saying, I know your skeletons. I know your stuff. I know your habits. But you're not hiding from me, and I'm still extending you an invitation. And she still doesn't get it. So she tries to start having a theological conversation with Jesus, right? She says this, I know that Messiah, or Savior, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain all of this to us. Then Jesus declared, this is awesome. He said, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This like shatters all of our ideas. All of of her ideas about God, all of her ideas about who's allowed at the table, because here's the Messiah who she believes is coming, and now he's, this guy's claiming to be him, and she's speaking with him. So her response is awesome. This is what she does. She leaves her water jar, and the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Everything. Could This be the Messiah. I love that she uses this word, come and see. Remember Nathaniel? Same thing, right? Come and experience. Come and see. She went back to the town who didn't want to listen to her, and she started yelling and screaming. If he's letting me sit down, he's probably going to let you knuckleheads sit down too. Come and see. He's offering me, and I'm sure he'll offer to you, the invitation of a lifetime. Jesus changed the narrative about who sits at the table. And we keep trying to shove it back. So I think the challenge we have today, listening to this final conversation, is we just simply this. We have to rethink who's at our table. right? Some of us were having way too many spiritual conversations and not enough relational conversations with people who have yet to discover Jesus. Some of us, we're going to way too many Bible studies and we need to get out there around people who are actually lost and needing Jesus. Because you're full enough and you're deep enough. But you're not, your table is restricted. I want to challenge you to answer the question. We have to rethink who is at our table. Are you ready to invite them to come and see? Maybe you work with someone who, who's from a different culture. Are you ready to invite them to come and see? Maybe you work with someone who has a different lifestyle or orientation. Are you ready to invite them to come and see? Maybe you go to school with, live in a neighborhood with someone who seems like they shouldn't or wouldn't or couldn't be part of this group. Are you ready to invite them to come and see? Because I think Jesus is pushing on us. I know he's pushed on me all week to reevaluate who's allowed at our table. 
And we need to at least be honest about it, okay? Let's at least be honest. If your table's restrictive, be honest. What is it? Is it skin color, economics, life experience, the neighborhood they live in or come from, level of education? At least it's worth asking the question, who can sit at my table? And in case this question doesn't work for you, let me reframe it. I think this will help you a little bit. Here's the one I want. Who do you not want to sit next to you on a plane? I was flying to Atlanta on Monday. Partly why I have this cold, because you get in those tubes with people for enough time and you get a cold. So I'm flying, and I'm an A-lister because I'm cool like that, right? So I'm in line, fly a lot. I'm not really paying attention. I get on the plane. I get my aisle seat because I'm an A-lister who's old. And so on a four-hour flight, i got to have access to the facility, and I want to crawl over people. Some of you are window people who are window people. Raise your hand if you're a window person. How many of you are aisle people with me? Raise your hand. Right? Nobody in this room is a middle seat person. All right? No one. I'm not even going to ask. Like, yes, I love the middle seat, right? So I get on the plane and I sit down and I'm actually going to work on this message on the flight. So I'm kind of thinking along those lines. And it's curious what happened to me as I sat there because, you know, people get on and you're kind of, somebody finally gets on and they're like, hey, can I sit by the window? And I get out of the way and they come and they sit by the window and it's fine. And now the dreaded middle seat is open, right? And they've already said like, it's a full flight, every seat, right? So you're, you're prepared for it. And then they get to the like, the, the loser C group people that get on the plane, right? <laughs> They're the ones that forgot to check in, and oh, you're like, oh, gosh, I'm C41. I'm like, oh, right? They've had to check their bag. They're, it's just a mess. And they're coming up the aisle, and I, I found myself like, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact, right? And you're kind of checking them out, and you're seeing, like, who do I know? Now, now all of us, it's like the poor mom, sorry, moms, with the little baby. You're like, oh, God, please no, right? You're like, no, 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 right? But it goes beyond that because then you just start thinking like, oh, that, I don't know. I want to spend the next four hours next to that person. That person's a little wide. They're going to take a little more seat that I'm really wanting to give up, right? Or that person, they look, I don't even know if they're from here. I don't know who they are, right? Or that person, they look like they've had a long night. That person bought lunch, so they've got this sandwich they're going to break out and eat. It's funny, but the truth is we sort of do that, right? We don't, and we see the one we don't want to sit and we put our eyes down. And when they pass by, we're like, thank God, right? <laughs> and you may even, I do this, you may even pick out people go like, that person be okay. Like, hey, like kind of give them like the, a nod, like right, right here, like it's good, right? Like, come sit here. So maybe the table thing doesn't do anything for you, but maybe when you think about the, the flight, you go, I get it, right? Because Jesus would have said to the woman with the five husbands plus one, he would have said, come and sit down. Come and sit down. Come and sit down. I got a drink coupon in Southwest. Let me buy you a drink, right? Come and sit down. That's what Jesus would have said to us. But why do we, why do we wrestle with this? It's interesting. I think Richard Beck, who wrote a book titled Stranger God, it's a great book, Meeting God, Meeting Jesus in Disguise. He gives this illustration he calls our moral circle. All right, here's what it looks like. It's, he says, this is us, right? And this is your moral circle. These are the people that are your people, right? It's basically family and uh, the, fam- the, the ones you like, family and friends, and then people that are like family. Like, man, I just, I love you. They're like family. These are your kin. This is what he calls your moral circle. These are the people around you that are included. These are the ones who talk like you and think like you, kind of behave like you, probably share a lot of the same worldview as you. These are the ones that, would sit at your table. These are the people that you would say, sit in the middle seat next to me for this next flight. 
Let me help you understand how this works because uh, just a simple illustration. Let's say that somebody who's in your moral circle, you know, a, a, a close friend or a family member, a, a son or a daughter or a, your mom, I mean somebody, they just got a brand new job waiting tables at a restaurant. And, and they've never waited tables before they got this job and they're very excited about it. So you decide on the second day that you're going to go in and you're going to have a meal and you're going to sit in their section. So you go in and you sit down and it's very busy and they're running around and they're sweating and they're just like, ah. And they come over and they're like, man, it's really busy. Can I get your drinks? And they, they get your drink order and they come back and the drinks are all wrong. Like they're just not right. You know, and you're like, hey, we're good. You know, and so they run away. They never come back. And then you say, hey, can we order? Like we've been here 20 minutes. So you order. And they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you're like, it's, it's good. And, then, and they bring the food and it's totally wrong. Everything's wrong, right? And you sit there and you eat. And, and what, what's your reaction? Like, do you call the manager over? No, because they're your friends. They're your family. You, you, you don't do that, right? And when you come to tip, even though it's been not a great experience, you, you bless them, right? It's like you have so, so much grace for them, man. Oh, I love them. And, uh, you know, and you have grace, and it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Go, go help other customers. But if you go to lunch later in just a few minutes... And you've got a server, you don't know who they are, you don't know their background, you don't know where they came from, you don't know their story at all. And they bring the wrong food, and you're like, right? all you know about them is that they stink at serving. Right? And they take the wrong order, and they don't come back, and you're like, what's wrong with them? They go in the back room, they never come out. You're frustrated, you call the manager over, like, this person, right? Comes time to tip, and you're like, right? Just draw a line, send a message, right? Well, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because that first person is in our circle, right? And the second person, they're not. And so we're able to gauge and judge and decide our reactions based on that. We show kindness to our kind. We show kindness to our kind. It seems like Jesus is challenging us to broaden and to stretch our circle, to expand it. And man, this challenges me. To make a decision to include people just merely based on the fact that God has made them in his image and that he probably actually has a plan and a purpose for their life, no matter where their life may be at the moment. And you might be part of that plan. You might be part of it. Listen, I believe your view of God will be as small as the size of your table. The smaller your table, the smaller your God. You'll also find that your view of God grows as you make room for other people at our table. It doesn't make our faith stronger, smaller. I think if we invite people, sit down, welcome them, it grows our faith, makes our view of God bigger and allows me to show others what he is like and how he feels about them. And we as a church, Little C Church, The Crossing, and Big C Church in our world, we are constantly challenged to live that radical lifestyle of Jesus, the hospitality that Jesus showed. It is a constant challenge to live out that value of come as you are. It is so easy to put it on a wall than it is to really live it out in our halls to say come as you are. There was a song a few years ago written by 21 Pilots. The song's name is Heathens. You've heard it. Set records was nominated for a Grammy, and I listened to it again this week, and the, the speaker and the audience of Heathens is a little bit unclear, but I think it speaks to what we're talking about today, and I'd like to read it as we close. I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. <laughs> but I, wanna, I want you to read the lyrics in just a moment with me 
as if Jesus is speaking to the church, as 21 pilots preaching to their fellow Christians. When you read it this way, heathens is both a prophetic rebuke to the church as well as an invitation to adopt Jesus' lifestyle of radical hospitality. Here's the, here's the opening lines of the song. It says this, all my friends are heathens. Take it slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know the half of the abuse. Both Jesus and 21 Pilots, they're talking about the relationship they have. People that sit at their table that we would call heathens. They're broken. They're, 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 off. they're off the path that God would have for them. And they bring these heathens to church, like many of you have done or were one of those people. And their request in this line is for the church to welcome these heathens with gentleness and compassion. Take it slow. Don't make judgments based on outside appearances. People are, people are, are weak and fragile, but you don't know half of the abuse. And then we associate the word disgust with a sense of smell, right? We wrinkle our nose, oh, that smells disgusting. This image is highlighted in the next verse of the song. It says this, we don't deal with outsiders very well. They say newcomers have a certain smell. So you're like, I've listened to that song forever. I never heard the lyrics. Boom, right? That feeling of disgust and other host of triggers that we wrestle with we got to master that if we want to replicate Jesus' hospitality and replicate the people that Jesus hung out with. The song continues. It says this, you're loving on the freak show sitting next to you. You'll have some weird people sitting next to you. Just turn right now and say, hello, I'm weird. All right? To the people sitting. They knew it already, so just <laughs> confess it. All right? You'll think, this is important, you'll think, how did I get here sitting next to you? Churches should be a place, a fellowship, where weird people sit next to each other. Where cowboy fans, and Dodger fans, and Giant fans, and Chiefs fans. Where we all can sit next to each other and proclaim, yeah, I've got some weirdness about me, some brokenness. And you do this not because we're saintly people. We do this because of the last line of the song, which says this. It looks like you might be one of us. If you're sitting next to somebody who seems like they're a freak show today, they look like you. We welcome the outcasts because we were all outcasts. We welcome the heathens because we were all at some point heathens. We are all broken. We all struggle with sin. We're all weird in some ways. We welcome freak shows because Jesus welcomed us when we were a freak show. And each week we come to together to be reminded and confess that in many ways we're still a freak show we're trying to figure it out and this is the church according to jesus and we're always expanding our circles we're extending invitations we're living out a come as you are mentality so that we can look around with joyous faces that don't even believe it and say how did i get here sitting next to you and it shows with our actions because we have to go through wherever our Samaria is. I don't know where your Samaria is, but we have to go through wherever our Samaria is. We'll never stop doing what Jesus called us to do. We'll never stop going where he called us to go or giving where he called us to give. We'll never ever stop loving people he called us to love. And we gotta always remember, even heading into this Easter week, that we are a community that lives inside here at times so that we can exist out there fully. So let them come as they are to this table, 
to this Jesus, who you and I have discovered is a friend of outcasts and freak shows and weirdos like you, like me. Father, we pray today in this moment that you would just convict our hearts. God, I pray that we would not just dream about these sort of relationships, that we would act towards these sort of relationships. God, I pray today that that would be us. I ask even as we come to this moment of communion, that it would be a moment again where you would confront us head on with who you are and who you desire us to be. Who you are and who you desire us to be. That's our desire. We ask it in your name. Amen.